I'm Mark Gagan, and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast, produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling an enterprise view of exposure. When my notebook is put away and the microphones are switched off, after a couple of drinks, people in the market often lament the lack of personalities in the modern insurance and reinsurance industry. They say that it's just not like it used to be, and that massive consolidation has pushed the individual to the sidelines within ever larger, ever more soulless corporations. Well, I think they're wrong. Today's guests prove that not to be true in any sense of the word. Rod Fox founded reinsurance broker and capital advisor Tiger Risk 13 years ago and has been carving a place in the sector and taking the big three brokers head-on ever since. Two years ago, fellow reinsurance veteran Rob Breedal joined the team, reuniting the pair who had worked together at Benfield in the early noughties. When I was organising this interview, I was worried that Rob might find it hard to make himself heard, because Rod is such a strong character. I needn't have worried. Their energy and camaraderie is palpable. They are also clearly having the time of their lives, as a well-resourced and aggressive tiger risk looks to take full advantage of the opportunities presenting themselves in a highly fluid reinsurance and capital markets intermediary space. We dissect the state of the market and go into deep detail about how Tiger is planning to double or possibly triple in size in the next five years. Rod is the first to speak. Enjoy the podcast. Hi, I'm Rick J. Lindsay, Chairman and CEO of Claims Direct Access, otherwise known as CDA. We all read about the claims nightmares in the United States of America, social inflation, nuclear verdicts, and the sky is falling. Hardly a day goes by without the news of reserve strengthening at major carriers. However, it's not all bad news. In the United States of America, we have the best legal system in the world, which allows you to fight frivolous claims and litigation and come out on top. In this kind of environment, you must get smarter about how you handle your claims and who your partners are. You have to move fast and be robust. CDA has been handling claims for over 40 years nationwide and has a team of 46 claims professionals, including 12 highly skilled attorneys and litigators. We have handled cases for major Lloyd syndicates since 1994, as well as U.S.-based major carriers and have closed over 70,000 claims since 1994 nationwide. Not settling frivolous litigations is a must. CDA claim service means going the extra mile, handling claims quickly and vigorously with a proactive approach. Why not get in contact now to see how CDA can do the same amazing work for you and your partners that they do for me every day? Visit www.claimsdirectaccess.com today. Rod and Rob, thank you so much for giving up the time to speak to the Voice of Insurance. Let's get straight into it. The matters of the day. We can't have a conversation with you guys without talking about Aon Willis and all the other major broker consolidation that's been going on. I'd just like to ask you, what, in your view, is that doing to the dynamics of the broker space right now? Well, first of all, Mark, glad to be here. Great to be with you and looking forward to chatting. Aon Willis, is there a deal? I don't know. It's just such a travesty on so many levels. It's a hot, holy mess, right? Let me start by saying I feel badly for the people in both organizations, but probably the Willis Reed people in particular. Imagine telling your clients, your family, the merits of becoming part of Aon. And then, wait, hold on, Gallagher's going to be much better. 
And then wait, hang on a second. You know, we don't know. We're not sure. So that's just hard. There's talented leadership at both organizations. I just can't imagine trying to navigate the global regulatory system right now. Just brutal. And I saw today Singapore is weighing in after the Department of Justice and all this other stuff. It's going to be brutal. So I think value is being destroyed by the day. We, Tiger, are sort of the antithesis to big broker consolidation. We're bespoke delivering customized solutions to evolving client needs. We're focused. We're not trying to be everything to everybody. We're all about the team. We're all about the people. And we're not trying to beat people over the head to do business with us. Yeah, we're trying to create a club of people that want to be in that club. So on a macro level, consolidation's inevitable, but it doesn't benefit everybody. It takes choice away from clients. It creates leverage against the market, and it sucks for the people. It's going to happen. I don't know what the ultimate form is going to be, but boy, this has been hard. I mean, I think it's now a year and a half, two years it's been in the process. Yeah. But Rod, I suppose just to be brutal, what does it really matter to you guys? Does it just make a better environment for you across the board in order to attract talent and also to maybe attract clients that don't want all this instability? Yeah, I think that consolidation is taking choice away. And it's making talented people look at their options. So we've grown by 30% in terms of people over the last year. We're 250 plus. We're expanding from a geographic and a product standpoint. We're expanding London significantly in terms of the specialties. And we like to say we're making reinsurance cool again. And Rod, you're already a fast-growing broker before that. So how much of a move in the dial has this made? If you were going to grow probably 20% before, how much has this accelerated your growth? I'd say it's accelerated it by probably 50% of our anticipated growth. So we're doubling the growth and that's clients, people, et cetera. And it's not any one organization. It's just people from all over the place. And you know, we're 13 years old now. So it's a bigger, better, stronger platform. And I think people get attracted to the culture and what we can deliver. And obviously, you've raised capital for growth. All that growth has been organic, as far as I'm fully aware, unless you did some quiet acquisitions without us noticing over the years, Rod. Now that it seems that everything is up for grabs, that everything is for sale, potentially, within the broking space, would you ever consider M&A now as a growth strategy? Yeah, maybe I'll jump in on that, Mark. So as Rod pointed out, we've been growing by about 20% a year in revenues and we were projecting before consolidation for similar growth. As Rod said, it's probably accelerating now. And hiring and building out in territories where we're currently operating, the US, Bermuda, the UK, and Europe, is just safe investment, controlled investment, good return on it. We would consider accelerating the growth by making an acquisition, but at least in those territories, there's really nothing available. And so there'll come a day where we move into South America and Asia, and maybe M&A makes more sense there. But right now we're open to it, but just don't see any attractive properties. Is it partly down to the valuations? Because I don't know, if I was a value investor right now, I would be looking to sell my insurance broking assets and probably looking to rebuy them cheaper in five years' time. <laughs> yeah, it's not valuation. I think we can be aggressive. We have resources if we found something that fit real well, but there's just not a target out there that we would be interested in. Is it also valuation doesn't matter so much if it's likely to be something that's quite small and therefore it's a rounding error one way or another? 
Yeah, probably right. I mean, the valuations mean less the smaller the property gets. And if you're buying an infrastructure, of course, it's not a valuation issue, just seeing the target. Those valuations seem to be they're historically high and they keep hitting new highs. Are we at a point now where we've hit a high watermark? Are they sustainable, do you think, these valuations at this kind of level? I'm fascinated by this equity market broadly, and it's been a little bit counterintuitive. But frankly, with economies unlocking and GDP growth, I think it's going to keep going up. So I think they are sustainable, but it is a little unnerving in some aspects of the equity market. We follow this pretty closely and just look at all forms of distribution companies, retail brokers, reinsurance brokers, MGAs, TPAs. It's really been a 20-year run where valuations, you know, multiples and margins have improved over that period. And as Rhett said, I don't see the end in sight, you know, especially as we move towards capital late models. Capital late models need brokers and intermediaries and service providers. Well, now you're 13 years into this project, Rod. Do you feel now you're really at a scale where you can go head to head with some of the really big brokers, that big three, soon to be big two, or we're not quite sure yet? You know, it's interesting, Mark. The years don't matter. I think on day one, we were going head to head. Now, I'm probably being a little naive about that. But for our whole existence, we've competed against those people. And doesn't concern me, doesn't scare me. Are they much larger, broader in terms of scale, et cetera? Yes. Our top five people against their top five, just as good, if not better, our top 10. So in every pitch we've done, our competition has been significantly those big brokers. So we think we have a seat at the table. We think we're more accepted across the global insurance business today, and we expect that to continue to grow. So again, as I said earlier, we're not going to try to be all things to all people. But we really punch hard in our classes. Hey, Mark, I think that's a great question 13 years ago. 13 years ago, I was at Aon Benfield competing against Tiger. And when Rod told me he was going to form an independent standalone reinsurance broker, I thought he was nuts. I told him he was nuts. I didn't think he could compete with the big guys. And from day one, Tiger competed. And yeah, we can sure compete 13 years later. In every other industry, people target market share as a measure of success. But for very sound reasons, in insurance, talk of market share is a no-no. But could we target something else? What about market presence? Because isn't performing well in the insurance world and outperforming on profitability really down to your market presence? After all, you can't place risks for clients you haven't met, and you can't underwrite business you haven't been shown. M&A and innovation do drive market presence but it can also be steadily achieved at a lower cost through brand building. Brand building works in part by activating a bias we all have called the availability heuristic. It simply means that when our brains are searching for an answer, say which broker or insurer to contact, the answer that comes most readily to mind is deemed to be the right one. In short, the greater your brand awareness, the more opportunities you'll see. It's a straightforward mechanism the team at Free Partners use. Free Partners is a brand and communications agency specialising in the insurance sector. So if you're thinking you'd like to see more opportunities, perhaps Free Partners will come to mind. Check out their three-step standout Grow Strong plan at freepartners.com. And in terms of where you want to play, you said you were broadening your product offering. 
but you're still sticking to niches where you feel that you've got some added value, you've got some strength rather than being a generalist. You're not at that stage where you could do almost anything in any territory. I think we're getting much closer to that, but that's a fair comment. We came in hard in the global property cat space and set a very high bar and, and still have excellent capabilities in that class. Specialty casualty, we've done two of the largest loss portfolio adverse development covers in history with both AIG and Liberty Mutual. Our London platform has gone way beyond just being a wholesaler. We now have real specialty capabilities there. And then in Europe, our teams develop significantly. So it's all evolving and it will only continue to increase. So we're excited about it. And maybe I would describe it a little bit differently. When we enter a space, when we enter a line of business, we want to be the best in that line of business. Two other things I just want to mention, Mark. Number one, we think about our business as risk, capital, and strategic advisory. So the risk being the reinsurance, capital, capital markets, and then we've got a strategic advisory business led by an ex-McKinsey partner who happened to be in the reinsurance business 15 years ago. And that's differentiated. We bring all that together in a holistic way, and it's really special. Number two, these big organizations I found are soulless. They lack soul. And you're working in a big machine. At Tiger, it's about culture, high performance, finding your spot, and being great at life. And you know, we had a call the other day. We bring former Navy SEALs. This happened to be a Navy fighter pilot who talked to our entire company for 30 minutes about a certain topic. And it's energizing. It's different. I don't think that happens everywhere. And it's fun. We're having a ball. We start talking about the market now, Rod. I want to draw on that closeness that you have to the capital markets and to the ultimate investors in insurance and the ultimate owners of the insurance industry. Just like to take the temperature there. How are they feeling about the insurance industry right now? We talked about some of this earlier. It's been a great run with distribution companies and service companies. And most private equity investors have focused on those and have stayed away from balance sheets you know, over the last really decade. And with the market improving last year, some crept back in and started investing in balance sheets. But I would say it's about 50% of insurance knowledgeable private equity investors are interested in risk-taking. 50% of them still prefer distribution and services. Are they still nervous about lost trends and about things that perhaps disappeared because of COVID and that may be coming back now the economy is reopening? You know, if you look at past cycles, the new formations have been almost exclusively reinsurance companies because there are very few barriers to entry. You know, we saw some of that again this time. I think the concern is just the availability of capital and the many ways in which capital can enter the business. There's new company formations and sidecars and ILS. And so it's tougher now to argue that you'll get multiple expansion on that balance sheet and reinsurance. And I think for that reason, the reinsurance market, yeah, it's improved. It's harder. The insurance market is pretty darn good right now. We have this big split in market conditions. And I think it's just no barriers to entry and lots of available capital. And do you think anecdotally that the class of 2020 is much more focused, wants to get into specialty, into ENS, into wholesale lines, seeing that that's where the opportunity is? 
every one of them is using reinsurance to get into the more difficult to enter primary business. But is that model slower than the old model of getting a balance sheet on Bermuda and opening up for reinsurance business on day two? It takes more time. Yeah, you know, Probably more execution risk, of course. Other people on the show have said, anecdotally, the class of 2020 really hasn't kind of showed up yet. Or if they have, the amount of capital is really a drop in the bucket. We had some balance sheet CEOs on a roundtable recently who was just saying, the way it's really shown up is where they're hiring my talent. <laughs> but they yeah. aren't showing up undercutting my prices yet. I hear that all the time. I disagree a little bit. If you look at any marketplace, it's the marginal capital that moves pricing around. And so if you look at total new capital, it's relatively small percentage versus outstanding capital in the industry. But guess what? Those people, those companies filled out reinsurance programs for us. And so they did impact pricing. Yeah, I would just echo that. Everybody said, well, it's just a drop in the bucket. But when we stepped back and looked at January 1, 4161, the new capital made an impact, made a real impact. And it wasn't necessarily undercutting price, but it was filling capacity that prevented further price increase, if you will. And it became much more orderly. And that's price though, right? Ultimately, yeah, it, it, is. it is. So we didn't have to place a shortfall cover. And, Plus you know, 35%. <laughs> yeah. So it might be a drop in the bucket, but if your order is one bucket, then the drop makes a difference at the margins. Yeah. Yep. I want to pick up on what you said about reinsurance. Perhaps you're saying there's big opportunities in specialty ENS wholesale lines on insurance. They're using reinsurance to access that or reinsurance capital to access that. A lot of people have said that the reinsurance market is almost a benign force in this hardening market, that it's happy to pick up the original rate increases that the cedents are pushing through on the insurance side. And it's almost a benign influence. Would that be right? The reinsurers are pushing hard for rain increases and terms and condition improvements, but capital's flowing very freely into the reinsurance market. And so where they push too hard, we can find alternatives. The other big factor is that the primary companies, there's been consolidation there as well, and they're big. And some of them are retaining more because they think the ratings are very attractive. And so there's probably more, or there probably has been more opportunistic buying going on in reinsurance versus compulsory buying than any of us thought. How does that feed into your overall assessment of how much longer the overall market hardening is going to run? It'll be at the stage now where people are happy with rate adequacy and you can start to see competitive forces reassessing themselves and the hardening might taper off. Tell me what your crystal ball says, right? The Western United States is the tinderbox. Sea surface temperatures in the Gulf are warm. I think it's going to sort of move along in an equilibrium for a while and then see what happens. I think there's negative trends as respect severity and frequency that are occurring. You've got the social inflation, which is still rearing its head, litigation funding. So there's a lot of factors here that will continue to push. I don't see any immediate hardening, but I think it'll be orderly and equilibrium for a while, albeit certain classes are still having issues. And where are the ones that the usual suspects still having issues? You know, commercial auto, and now we're seeing emerging difficulty in cyber. Can we get some detail on those? Yeah, I mean, I think excess casualty towers, 
are still hard professional liability, long-term care, nursing homes, hospitals, property ENS, still hard. And again, depending on what happens, one of the things, and you've seen this, the commodity prices, if we have catastrophes, wherever they are, the cost of that rebuild is significantly higher today. And that could really create a problem, depending on the severity of the event. So property ENS in California, wildfire areas in certain areas of the Gulf, still hard cyber, you mentioned aging services, a variety of things. I'd throw in too that there's a big drop in frequency in all things wheels and workers' comp and other lines of business, GL. And now the economy is coming roaring back. And at least the roads I've been on have been horrific. The conditions, the roads are awful, traffic's bad. And I've never seen more aggressive, reckless drivers. And so you're assuming we're going to get back to 2019 type levels of frequency. I'm not so sure. It's feeling like it could be worse than that to me. How are the roads in the UK, Mark? They're getting pretty busy again. Pretty busy again. Because how's the condition, the structural condition? Because New York City is like driving through Libya. Oh, it is. No one's been fixing them for the last 18 months anyway, I can tell you that. And of course, public transport, a lot of people have been put off going on public transport. So perfectly understandable. And of course, they're more likely to be driving their cars, even in a place like London, where it's not always advisable or economically sensible. But anyway, People be more worried about inflation on a long list of things that underwriters might want to be worried about and using as a stick to beat their students and clients with. Again, we've seen more worry about inflation, certainly in terms of building materials, all sorts of things. And also perhaps a worry that inflation will get ahead of interest rates and that side of the balance sheet, that the investment side of the balance sheet is going to take a bit of a beating on or a capital loss again because of that. Are you feeling much of that or is it one of these things that comes and goes? Central banks seem to get in a bit of a fit for three or four weeks, and then they say, oh, by the way, no, it was overblown. It's not happening. I, I don't know how that's feeding into underwriters' thinking. Yeah, I'm not sure if it's feeding into underwriters yet, but senior management insurers and reinsurers are very concerned about it. I'm in Bermuda right now, and it's a topic in every meeting. You know, what's inflation going to do to loss cost trends? You know, The average insurance company has reserve leverage of three or four to one. And so a little bit of inflation on those reserves has an enormous impact on the bottom line. And the offset historically, of course, are interest rates. Yeah. Inflation when reserves get a little bit worse, you offset it with some investment income. We'll see what that relationship looks like between inflation and interest rates. It's uncertain right now. Over in Europe, obviously, we've had a longer history of suffering inflation in the post-war years. In the European reinsurance market, we've always had indexation clauses. Do you think there's something that everyone will be talking about over in the States at some point? Might be, yeah. You seem to have managed to get away without having any until now, but that's not creeping into conversations in any sense. It's interesting comment and thought and observation, but I have not had a conversation yet here. We couldn't have a podcast in 2021 or at any time in the last 18 months without talking about COVID. So is COVID really not such a big topic of conversation anymore? Is it done as an insurance and reinsurance issue? Obviously, we know we've got things that are potentially parked and waiting, disputes that may need to be heard or whatever. But in terms of a current issue on today's desk, is it still a worry and still affecting the dynamics of the market? I'll make a macro comment and Rob can go. I mean, COVID has been just amazing to me. 
you know, the fact that the globe could shut down for 18 months. And now we're seeing the Delta variant. And I know it's raising its head in the UK. People are waiting for it. So we all think we're coming out now out of the cocoon. But might we go back in? Further event cancellation. So my personal view is COVID will ultimately be bigger than we think it is right now. I don't know how it comes out, but I think there's a lot of latent COVID exposure buried within portfolios around the world. The early estimates were over 100 billion of losses, and I think only around 50 billion or so has been realized. And so that's a pretty big gap. And I think COVID losses will leak out. And those losses were offset by the drop in frequency that we talked about earlier. And that was probably tens of billions of savings. And so there's been this netting. We have continued COVID losses creep through and then frequency shoots up. Yeah, we could have sustained harder market. Is it your sense that we're going to be seeing the word COVID attached to reserve changes for quarters to come? Or would it be one of these things a bit like you have when you have a big hurricane? After about the fifth or sixth quarter, you just don't hear about it anymore. It just washes through. Yeah, I think after about the fifth or sixth quarter, you probably won't hear more about it unless we're locking down again and everything gets all screwed up. I suppose one of the main side effects that we all know about COVID has been a great push to the digitization of the way that we all do business in all of our lives. And the insurance industry has been no different. Of course, we're still talking on Zoom because we still can't meet up, can't cross the Atlantic easily. So it seems like a good way of leading into, you're a very futuristic firm. I would always associate you with trying to enhance technology, trying to apply technology, and trying to be at the cutting edge of that. Where are we going with all this digital? We're seeing some such interesting developments. Obviously, we've had this fantastic insurtech phenomenon with a huge amount of investment and now publicly quoted insurtech businesses. And also, over in London, we're seeing algorithmic underwriting at Lloyd's, all sorts of really exciting things that we probably wouldn't have imagined would have happened 10 years ago. So where are you seeing all this going and how are you getting ready for it? Or are you instigating all of this stuff? Let me just step back for a second. So Rob Bradle used to work in the derivatives business and we would commute into New York together and we would talk about the different reinsurance and derivatives. We were basically doing the same thing, but they were 15 years ahead of us in terms of technology and process and everything else. And I said, you know, why don't you come do that in the reinsurance business? We invested significantly in our first technology business, Rob, what, 20, 30 years ago? 2025, yeah. And have believed that digitization should come to insurance the whole way along. And standardization and trading platforms, all the stuff we've seen in the fixed income markets, we think. Yeah, I mean, it happens in every other financial services marketplace. So it will be here. It's just taken longer. So- We absolutely believe it will be here. We're preparing. We talk about it all the time. We've built our own platforms. We're ready to go. We're using them today. We think the broker of the future looks like data will be more important. Embrace it. Are you going to fall behind? Digital trading will become much more active. Algorithmic portfolio matching will occur. We're doing that today with our Tiger Eye platform, new classes of entrants, you know, where the insurance is embedded in the product, the Teslas, the Ubers, the Hippos, the Lemonades, and consolidation will continue. 
but capital will also become disaggregated with new entrants emerging more quickly. So you'd say that you've already been ready for this for a long time, before Tiger. Right. And we think we're very nimble with it, too. We think we can push that button hard. These things tend to all happen at once, you know, like in the 80s, we had a big bang in financial markets and just equity trading, for example. Do you think we'll hit a tipping point and it'll suddenly just switch? I presume, would you agree that when it happens, it'll happen really fast? I think when it happens, it will happen fast-ish. But remember, we're talking about the insurance marketplace. (laughs) So fast is a relative term. But I think you'll see it continue to creep in and ultimately it will tip over. We saw in the 80s, uh, driver's market, bond market moved online very quickly. And that happened in a matter of a few years. Insurance and reinsurance is not standardized to the point where that could easily happen. And so it could be an acceleration, but it's going to take a little time. And what's your reaction as a broker to some algorithmic underwriting? Is your reaction algorithmic broking? Yes. I think you're seeing that. And again, we talked about consolidation earlier. Consolidation leads to more power at the broker. So whether you're calling it algorithmic or portfolio broking, you're going to see more on both sides. And you should. How far do you think the algorithmic or automatic computer is looking at all those variables, looking at the risk, looking at the price it's getting for the risk and working out whether that's a good risk reward equation and deciding whether to put a line down or not or to offer a line? Obviously, that seems to be suitable, very suitable, and always has been for high volume, low sum insured and low premium business. How far up the specialty tree do you think it could get in terms of very low volume, very high premium business? I think algorithmic underwriting fits, as you said, for small limit primary business, much harder on the reinsurance side. You're one step away from the data, and many have tried, but it's more difficult for reinsurers to apply it. I think the area where you're starting to see it in reinsurance is it's a matching line facility. So XYZ puts a lead line down, bam, we're automatic. We're not even looking at that. But, but that's not really algorithmic. Yeah, it's not. It's not. It's, it could be humans. It could be humans. Yeah. And it's just old subscription market. You just see who's the leader and say, well, I'll write whatever half the right. line. It's that just being written. done faster and digitally, right? Without human intervention. Yeah, so we can see that's integrated on brokers' desktops these days. And in fact, you know, some news now that that's starting to even at a very big broker, that that's on every single broker's desk. They will see that an algorithmic syndicate is offering them a line automatically and they can just choose to accept it. Yeah. What about yourselves in terms of the way that this is going to change your frictional costs and the operational efficiency of what you're doing as a broker? I had David Howden on the show a while back and he said, look, insurance broking is going the way and reinsurance broking is going the way of stock broking in the 80s. Used to pay whatever, $15 a trade. Then it went down and we went online and it was seven and it was 10. And now you've got Robin Hood and whatever different platforms on people's phones and it's zero. He said that broker's commission obviously will tend to zero as the frictional costs are removed at some point, and we will have to be ready for that. Do you agree with that analysis? And also, do you think we will go to a 100% fee model at some point in the future? I know the the weird thing is that we've been talking about this probably for 30 years, that we will be fee-based. We'll be charging like lawyers in the dollars by the hour, but that doesn't seem to have ever happened. I'm realistic in that there will always be pressure on intermediary fees. And the way we structured our business is I talked about risk 
capital strategic advisory, we want to be adding very high-end value to a group of sophisticated clients around the globe. And that pushes off the continued pressure. So we believe that the advisory, which is much more than the transaction today, will continue to remain an important part of the compensation. And we're building the firm to deliver that value. So there will always be pressure. I agree with you. It's been discussed for 30 years. Yes, some of it has changed. It will continue to move. But I don't see this tendency to zero in the near term. You're not worried about compression of margins? I mean, it's something we talk about all the time. Um, and we just, We're always worried about compression. Yeah. <laughs> if, you're not, if you're not paranoid about stuff, you know, you're not paying attention. But we build the firm to work against that. And I think talk to people in the market, we deliver massive value and we want to get paid for it. If you're adding value, the revenue model in the industry shouldn't matter. Yep. Although direct reinsurance is really a thing of the past, if we're not adding value, you shouldn't use us. You don't have to pay anything. But I think in the majority of cases, we're going to add a lot of value in multiple areas. You get what you pay for. And if you're not getting what you're paying for, then you go somewhere else. Correct. What about your long-term plan for Tiger? 13 years in, you've got any kind of plan, Rod, to say at some point, you know, I want that big yacht or private jet, or I don't know, what is it? Or is it something you want to keep going forever? You know, you want to have your name above the door, even when you're being pushed around in a wheelchair. (laughs) Thank goodness it's not my name on the door. It's Tiger, which does... You know, people. Being, you could have done Fox. Foxes yeah, are quite good. People remember Tiger much more than Fox, but you know, a private partnership with a steep growth trajectory is a pretty nice place to be. So we're very happy. And from the outset, we never had a specific plan. Like, all right, we're exiting here. We're doing that. The idea of selling to a strategic makes no sense to us. We value the team. We value the culture. So our thesis has been build a great company and the options will unfold in front of you. We've got a wonderful capital partner with FlexPoint today, and that's worked extremely well. We took a page out of the Amwin's book and following and working with private equity. It's been great. So we're going to continue to build this wonderful firm and we'll see what happens. But very happy to keep rolling. And is it the way that private markets are these days, can you just keep rolling as a private company almost forever that you never really have to go public? I don't think you have to go public. And now it's been the Amwin's model. Yeah. We capitalize several times. Yeah. I mean, some people are fascinated by the public market, but I mean, we've done it before. It's painful. We're asked this question all the time. Where's Tiger going? What's going to happen in the near term? And just given the beautiful runway in front of us, just can't imagine we would determine it makes sense to sell it in the next five years, given the value we can create over that period. What sort of value do you think you can add in that time? Do you think you can double or triple in that time? Or we can easily double in value. We can easily double and triple is very much in range. It's just unleashing your imagination. So you're not tempted to go public. Obviously, we've seen Brian Specialty Group them filing for an IPO. Perhaps that's because there's such a scarcity of publicly traded brokers to invest in. And given they're so popular with investors, it would seem to be a smart move, wouldn't it? Yeah, it is. And and by the way, Pat has done a fantastic job with his team and kudos to him. And he's also done a great job managing 
public market business. I think our business is a little more spiky in terms of quarterly earnings and things like that. It just it's slightly harder to explain and we'd rather spend time with clients and develop solutions and manage public investors. One of our competitive advantages is that our senior most people are very involved with clients and in transactions. If we were public, that couldn't be the case. We'd have to spend time being public. You'd be on quarterly investor calls and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, meeting the analysts, yeah, et cetera. And as also you're saying, because you're still a fast growth company, you're going to have quarters that look bad because you've made a lot of investment and you haven't got the returns back yet. The transaction closed on January 1st, not December 28th or you know, whatever it is. And so it's really nice to not have to worry about all that and just keep building a great business. We create liquidity with private equity. We can continue to do that in the future. So we think there's great value creation ahead. And we're having fun is the best thing, right? We're having a good time. It seems clear from that. Obviously, I've been with you along this journey, Rod, and I don't think I've ever seen you looking so sort of cheerful. <laughs> well, as cheerful as you always are. Indomitable. There you go. Rod and Rob, I've really enjoyed chatting to you. It's been fantastic. Unless you've got anything else to add, I'm ready to sign off here. I've run out of the questions I was going to ask you, and we've gone into a lot more topics than were on my list of questions, actually. And I've really enjoyed chatting to you. It's always great fun. We'll put something on the diary for at some point in the future to have another checkpoint and see what your thinking is there. But it's been great talking to people so connected in the marketplace and being so frank and letting us know everything that you're thinking. So thanks very much. Thank you, Mark. Take care. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this program. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance is produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling an enterprise view of exposure. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com. Dot com.